0: Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones.
1: And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure.
0: And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 37. Today we travel above the clouds in the company of hot-headed aeronaut Joyce Armstrong in the horror of the heights. And here's Paul to set the scene. Following the disappearance
1: of the celebrated pioneer aeronaut, Mr Joyce Armstrong, an incomplete and blood-stained notebook is discovered in a field, together with a briar pipe and a badly damaged pair of binoculars. When examined, this document appears to be Joyce Armstrong's journal chronicling his high-flying experiments and his recent unsettling encounters in the reaches of the upper atmosphere, where, it transpires, a form of air jungle exists, as mysterious and dangerous as those to be found on terra firma.
0: The Horror of the Heights was written around autumn 1913, but might well have had its origins quite some time previously. Uh, Andrew Lysett, in his biography of Conan Doyle, suggests that the story was commissioned by The Strand three years earlier and we don't know if Conan Doyle was commissioned to write any story for The Strand, or if it was this story in particular. Uh, Nor do we know why it took so long to be delivered to the publishers. Although in uh, November 1912, Conan Doyle complained to the bookman that he was suffering from what he described as a weary waiting for ideas. How true that is, is debatable, since in the 18 months before Horror of the Heights was published, Conan Doyle had been fairly prolific, Uh, He'd written both The Lost World and The Poison Belt, which introduced Professor Challenger to the world, and show an experimentation with speculative, if not science fiction, that's also reflected here in Horror of the Heights. Um, And either side of Horror of the Heights first appearing in November 1913, we have the publication of How It Happened, a story which is based on a car accident that Conan Doyle was involved in, uh, Borrowed Scenes, a pastiche of the work of George Borrow and the Sherlock Holmes story, The Dying Detective. But as for sort of immediate inspirations for the story, uh, we've got to remember that these were the very earliest days of of flight, and Conan Doyle himself participated in both a balloon ride in 1901 and also in a (laughs) hair-raising biplane flight in 1911. But a a special inspiration for this may well be the groundbreaking flight of a French um, aeronaut, Roland Garrow, on the 11th of December 1912, when he broke the altitude record at 18,500 feet, an incident which is actually directly referenced in this story. Um, But aside from Garrow, any quick survey of the newspapers of 1913 will show they're awash with aeronautical endeavours, incidents, and accidents. Uh, In fact, one of them in February 1913, which took place over the skies of Kent, involved a close shave for a certain Major Gerard. And one wonders if that name and incident leapt out at Conan Doyle. So Man Flight was an inspiration, but it may also be that Conan Doyle was musing on exploration and Antarctic exploration in particular. Um, In spring 1913, Conan Doyle was visited by Trumbull White, the American editor of Everybody's Magazine, which later that year published Horror of the Heights in the U.S., uh, and for the best part of a decade, Trouble White had been lobbying Conan Doyle and his brother-in-law, Willie Hornung, for a series of Holmes versus Raffles stories, which Conan Doyle had politely declined several times. But that wasn't the reason why White was in Britain. He was there because he was arranging for the publication of the diaries of the late Captain Robert Scott, who had uh, frozen to death on the expedition to the Antarctic the previous year. Uh, and the highlight of that diary was to be Scott's tragic last message and of course here in Horror of the Heights we also have an emphasis on a on a uh, tragic last message. Horror of the Heights then first appeared in the Strand magazine in November 1913 with illustrations by W.R.S. Stott, four of them very beautiful and in full color Um, and in the U.S. it first appeared in everybody's magazine uh, with illustrations by Henry Reuterdahl who also illustrated um conan doyle's prophetic submarine tale danger for collier's magazine um, and that's a story that also has some some resonances with horror of the heights written around this time and there's a wonderful facsimile of the manuscript with annotations by phil Bergham, which was released by calabash press in, in 2004 and is well worth tracking down
1: yeah um, and as, as you've mentioned there mark the, the the early 20th century really is a time when when kind of heavier than air flight is really taking off you know before that had been balloons and dirigibles of various kinds um and then once you've got the, the wright brothers in 1903 flying their biplane you it then opens opens the world up to um to, to this this sort of technology and it it, it seems to been particularly active in 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 France, mm. um, where you, you've got a, a flight in November 1906 by a Brazilian who lived in France, uh, Santos Dumont. Uh, you, you, Henri Farman piloting the Voisin biplane in 1907. Blériot, of course, with 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 his his uh, Antoinette monoplane crossing the English Channel in July 1909. So all this this is 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 very inspirational stuff. Um, and it's interesting that, that uh, Lord Northcliffe, uh, who, who the proprietor of the Daily Mail, was watching this with, a, with a, almost a jaundiced eye, uh, seeing all these French triumphs, uh, and he really wanted to see some British development moving with this. And he, he offered uh, prize money to try and encourage British development. And and he, one of his ideas was a circuit of Britain air race, um, but but kind of before this in 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 1910 there'd been no, another race uh, between a British pilot Claude Graham White and a French pilot Louis Polain, and this was from London to Manchester, and unfortunately for all Northcliffe's hopes and so on, Pauline won won. <laughs> um, but in in the, the the following year, you saw the real first circuit race, uh, which which started on the coast of Southeast England uh, mm. and was meant to go around the entire coast and end up back in Southeast England. Um, and this really attracted um, great public interest and press interest. Um, yeah. And I'm sure Conan Doyle himself will have uh, yeah. will have really yeah. spotted this. This would have um, kind of excited him i'm quite sure and thought oh this this is uh, this is rather interesting stuff going on here and there, there were numerous competitors most had to drop out because various breakdowns and crashes and and in the end um probably much to northcliffe's disappointment uh it was won by a french naval lieutenant jean louis um who actually flew under the name andre beaumont Uh, He won the £10,000 prize that Northcliffe was offering. Um, And and the runner was another Frenchman, Jules Védrine. And both of them were flying French machines as well. So... Unfortunately, it it sort of backfired in in that sense. But again, you've got the development of aerotechnology and aero industry. Mm. So it is encouraging this at
0: the same time. And that took place about the same time as the Prince Henry tour, which was another example of these kind of national sporting rivalries uh, with a sort of technological bent. Um, And we covered that in uh, episode four on on the story Danger.
1: Mm. Um, And in August 1913, the year The Horror of Heights was published, Um, Another British circuit was was attempted, this time by um, Harry Hawker. And it was a seaplane special. Um, And he was flying a seaplane with floats. And he actually got from southeast England, round the coast over the north of Scotland, but unfortunately crashed near Dublin. So uh, never made the actual, uh, the, the actual circuit. Wow. Um, but, but all of this, I'm quite sure, you know, because of the, the publicity, will have attracted um, um, Conan Doyle to his attention with, with this and whether his mind was already thinking on doing a, mm. uh, a, an aircraft story. Mm. Um, and again, as you, you mentioned earlier, um, on the 25th of May, 1911, Conan Doyle himself had taken a flight in a biplane from Hendon. Yes. Uh, And he he wrote of the experience in uh, Memories and Adventures. I had one aeroplane excursion in rather early days, but the experience was not entirely a pleasant one. Machines were under-engined in those days and very much at the mercy of the wind. We went up at Hendon, but the machine was a heavy biplane, and though it went downwind like a swallow, it was more serious when we turned and found, looking down, that the objects below us were stationary or even inclined to drift backwards. However, we got back to the field at last, and I think the pilot was as relieved as I. What impressed me most was the terrible racket of the propeller, comparing so unfavorably with the delicious calm of the balloon journey, mm. you know, the, the one he'd taken in nineteen o one. So, you know, the, the, this 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 sort of stuff was was very much in his mind at this particular point in time.
0: Mm, I hadn't noticed before, as well, that that reference to looking downwards there's a there's a moment in The Horror of the Heights where Joyce Armstrong is looking down at the planes buzzing mm. below. Uh, it's, it feels very much like he's drawing on direct personal experience in that. Oh,
1: absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm sure this, this story wasn't written until after he'd, he'd taken that flight because there's real verisimilitude mm. in, in the writing. And it's also interesting that you you've got that reference there to the racket. Yes, uh, and and in in the story, Joyce Armstrong is flying a, a poor, and these are fictional names which we'll come on to later. Mm. Um, he's flying a poor verena monoplane with a one seven five rubber engine, which has a full deep throated purr, uh, and then says, "Unlike the monstrous racket of the early machines, yeah, yeah." Um, so, so again, that seems to be coming out of his experience, mm. um, and it's it, it's it's notable something. That you've spotted um, on the uh, the reproduction manuscript um, as well, that, that he was originally going to be flying a Blériot monoplane um, and then decided to, to change it to a Paul Verena for, for reasons that we'll that we'll go into later. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, there, there's another possible um, uh, aeronaut uh, influence on this who's got a connection to Conan Doyle and that's uh, Gertrude Bacon who was a a pioneer aeronaut, one of the first women to fly uh, a balloon in 1898. And it was uh, Alexei Barquin at the wonderful Conan Doyle Encyclopedia site who made this connection. And uh, Gertrude Bacon wrote several books on the subject, including Record of an Aeronaut in 1907 and Memories of Land and Sky in 1928, which has a very peculiar direct connection to both The Strand and to Conan Doyle in that uh, in march 1899 she wrote an article for the strand entitled pigs of celebrities in which she asked famous people to draw pigs blindfolded um and conan doyle um supplied a pretty dreadful attempt um and uh, and we've done our own attempt which will appear in the show notes as well um but she um shortly after that article appeared she and her father took a, a pretty hair raising balloon flight uh, in November, 1899, and uh, as Alexi says, um, several details of this anecdote uh, from Gertrude Bacon, the fear of the dangers of altitude, the cap lost over the side, the distress messages thrown overboard and then found on the ground, the crash are details that can be found in the horror of the heights. Um, so, uh, you know, another uh, another possible uh, person to have influenced Conan Doyle, or at least been in the back of his mind as he's, as he's writing this story.
1: And, and, and in relation to that as well, you, you could compare their, their flight to, to Conan Doyle's own balloon flight, <laughs> which he seems rather to have enjoyed, um, yeah. where you got his, his experience again in Memories of Adventures. He, he says, I had a balloon ascent in which we covered 25 miles and ascended 6,000 feet, which was so delightful an expedition that I've always been eager for another and a longer one. So the opposite experience to his uh, his his flight in the uh, in the biplane.
0: Yeah. And while we're on the topic of um, real world inspirations uh, for the story, it, I just want to go back to this point about um, the Antarctic explorer and to Scott, because I do think that this is um, a, a, a real clear influence on on Conan Doyle on, on this story. I mean, um, when Trumbull White was in the UK, he uh, he was interviewed briefly. Uh, in the Express newspaper, and he 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 fixated quite heavily on the, on Scott's last message, um, and he told the Express, "It struck me as the most remarkable thought that the very last passage, Captain Scott's appeal to his country on behalf of the dependents that he and his comrades left behind them, is written without erasure, interlineation, or correction of any kind." Um, Scott's last message was, uh, "Had we lived." I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes and our dead bodies must tell the tale. But surely, surely a great rich country like ours will see that those who are dependent on us are properly provided for. And um, Conan Doyle, I think, has got the memory of Scott in this, not least because Joyce Armstrong is a man who knows that death is round the corner. There is a sentence at the end. it is worth remarking that after his own complete disappearance, it was found that his private affairs were arranged with a precision which may show that he had a strong premonition of disaster, um, and that sort of put me in mind of another Conan Doyle character, um, Flight Commander Stangate, in *The Lift* from 1922, who is a a, a pilot who has uh, uh, can sense misfortune and death round the corner. But Joyce Armstrong has other things that connect him to other explorers in Conan Doyle fiction. Uh, there's, um, in particular, uh, an emphasis here on the the burden of scientific proof. Joyce Armstrong mirroring the sort of things that you would expect Professor Challenger to be saying in the lost world. Um, in the penultimate section of the uh, uh, of the what is called the Joyce Armstrong fragment, um, the surviving record, Joyce Armstrong says. And now it's my plan to go once again before I give my results to the world. My reason for this is that I must surely have something to show by way of proof before I lay such a tale before my fellow men. It is true that others will soon follow and will confirm what I have said, and yet I should wish to carry conviction from the first. And 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 also, you know, Conan Doyle did actually meet Scott and uh, thought that this was a, the sort of man who would either reach the pole or die trying. Um, and his comment to the newspapers was, was, "I little thought then that he would do both."
1: Yeah, I, th- I think this this, um, this this Scott connection is 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 really fascinating, mm. um, and, and particularly you know as you, you said that Conan Doyle met him, mm. um, and you, you've got in the story Joyce Armstrong is is presented as as a a very admirable character. In that sense of pioneering and being this 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 all rounder, uh, mm. as, as you said, and, and you know, someone to be looked up to, but he's also a pretty dislikable
0: character, yeah,
1: because he's so driven. Um, and you get this from not directly from other characters, but from what other characters are saying about him. Yes, that he's he's difficult to work with. He's, he's he's a bit of a bit of a kind of tetchy, Mm. Um, difficult character um, and and very egocentric and very very pushing, which of course these sort of characters have to be. And 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 you, you, in reality, you, people who talked about Captain Scott,
0: mm.
1: he wasn't the easiest man to work with. Uh, he he wasn't you know what you could describe as a lovable character, mm. but he, he he got on and tried to get the job done. And and Joyce Armstrong is very very much in in that sort of mould. Yes, a, That kind of. the 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 difficult man but a hero
0: yeah and that's another that's a another trait that you see in challenger i suppose as well
1: Mm, mm, yeah
0: he he he
1: has his ideas but those who see he's heading in the right direction will put up with that yes because they see the the brilliance or whatever it is that's underlying all that Mm. and there's there's also this this other element in the in the whole uh, scott saga which, which kind of links in with what I was discussing earlier with 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 early aviation, where where early aviation you have this this almost Anglo French rivalry going on, hmm. um, and then in the drive for the South Pole, it, it's, it's it's this Anglo Norwegian rivalry yeah. uh, with 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 Amundsen and Scott, um, and that's one of Scott's other driving forces personal driving force i'm sure that you know it must be the union jack gets there first yeah um and and this in this this kind of tense world that we're talking about at that time where 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 the whole of europe is an armed camp and these international rivalries are just waiting to blow up in 1914 mm. it's another another strong driving factor
0: mm. yes so joyce armstrong feels like a very real character could well be drawing on on this influence and and Conan Doyle does a very good job in this story of creating verisimilitude, isn't it? I mean, you he, he really do get the sense that this is a, a a real account. Um you have obviously real people thrown into the mix, real mm-hmm. places thrown into the mix, um, and you get these sort of apparently real accounts of uh these unrelated incidents, this this instance of Myrtle and Hay Connor, and mm-hmm. um, but you also get this kind of almost quite sterile nerdish technical detail of joyce armstrong's flight and the responses to the weather conditions and the changes in the note of the engine and of these things it, it all adds again he's drawing on his experience but it all adds to the sort of reality of this uh, but actually you know this isn't a, a present day setting i mean phil Bergum does a a great job in the in the annotated manuscript of pointing out that this story is set in the very near future uh, in the same way as was the case with um danger, the story we featured mm-hmm. in in episode four, which was submarine technology just round the corner, but also similarly h uh, g Wells, the land ironclads, which did the same for sort of armored tanks um, but you know there 's lots of minor details in the story that suggest that this is the the near future setting so Mm. um at one point we're told aeroplaning has been with us now for more than 20 years well it was only 10 years at the time um there's a reference to the engine being about 300 horsepower which was you know wouldn't happen for another four or five years Mm. um but probably the 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 most significant one is uh some of us can remember how in our youth garrow made a worldwide reputation by attaining nineteen thousand feet well that was the, the the um uh, the achievement of December nineteen twelve, less than a year mm. um, before the uh, the story was written, so you know you 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 get these things that are, are feels that like this is just set just round the corner, and of course in that Conan Doyle is making predictions as he did with Danger about what was going to happen, and some of the things he does quite well. You know he he's able to predict that uh, people are going to need oxygen when reaching great altitudes. I mean. He, he wasn't exactly guessing so much there because we knew back in the uh, 1860s that this was a, um, that this was a requirement. Um, there's actually a reference in the story to the Glacier-Coxwell balloon flight mm-hmm. from September 1862, um, where um, Coxwell, who was the foremost British balloonist of the day, and Glacier, who was a scientist who was going to do upper atmosphere experiments, um, got into trouble when they ascended to about 30,000 feet and Glacier lost consciousness and Coxwell became numb in the hands and then to make the ascent they had to try and release the vent uh, but unfortunately that had failed so you get the remarkable sight of Coxwell climbing up the rigging <laughs> to then release the vent with his teeth and return to the basket shortly before he uh uh, before he himself succumbed from lack of oxygen, so you know it, it was well known. Conan all knew this; it was referenced in in the story as well. But some other things he sort of predicts and doesn't quite get right. He knows that you know it's going to be colder there, but he predicts it being a lot warmer than it actually is. He there's an interesting thing there about the about magnetism as well. He has this view that the higher up you get, <laughs> the um, the uh, uh, the compass is not going to work anymore. Um, although you know, interestingly. We now believe that some creatures um, navigate on sort of inbuilt magnetic receptors, <laughs> um, which uh, which might suggest some of the how some of the creatures that uh, Joyce Armstrong encounters uh, navigate around uh, around the world. But also, you know, finally, you have these things like the uh, meteorites um, appearing uh, uh, and bombarding poor Joyce Armstrong. He's he's making. The first of his two trips in this story and fortunately for air flyers everywhere <laughs> um we don't get regularly bombarded by meteorites <laughs> in the upper atmosphere but yeah but it but it, it's uh it, it's it's just great because it it does feel like a real account um which is obviously setting up the the, the second half of the story
1: yeah and it, it's it's this this whole idea this 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 almost clever double play with the reader here of, yes, this is fiction, but I'm going to make it realistic. Obviously, as you've pointed out, this is around the same time as he's he's working on or, or he's, he's just published The Lost World, mm. which is, is pulling the same trick. Exactly, yeah. Um, which Which is where you've got the character in it saying he must bring proofs back. And then you've got the writer of the story <laughs> saying, "I must make this as realistic as possible, mm-hmm. or as, as much as I know, as, as kind of the science, even if it ain't all right, it's it's got to sound yeah, right, and it's it got to convince." So uh, I, I think, given the knowledge of the time, Conan Doyle just about pulls that off with this yeah. story.
0: Yeah, he does. He does. Mm. And in addition to this near future setting, you know, you've got other elements of this story that are science fictional and clearly drawing on on science fiction traditions
1: yeah and i along these lines we 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 come back to uh an old friend of the podcast Jules Verne <laughs> who has has shown up on another uh, a number of previous episodes because he was so influential
0: mm, uh,
1: on conan doyle who who you know first read him as a schoolboy at Stonyhurst and then mm. read him in french and 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 loved his stories so again you've got elements of of, of his work uh, beginning to come in what, what's interesting actually you've got verne was obviously fascinated by flight mm. um and his earliest is i think it was his first book with the five weeks in a balloon yes um yeah. in 1863 um, which which is almost thirty years before Verne himself actually took a balloon flight. Yes. And so he's really uh, using his imagination. And uh, 1875, the mysterious island hmm. uh, has a, has a, a group landing on a, on, uh, as the title suggests, a strange island um, that they've got there in a balloon. Um, but you've also got Verne playing around with with the idea of heavier than air machines. Yes. Um, and and in those you have got one. Particular character um, in 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 two of them, the um, the Clipper of the Clouds uh, uh, from eighteen eighty six, which was the English translation of a, uh, a book originally entitled Rubber La yeah. Um about mm-hmm. this um, rather megalomaniacal genius Robert, mm. um this kind of almost crazy inventor type you know, who become yes. so so popular in fiction the, the, as, as a character type, mm. um, but he um, reappears uh, in another novel uh, master of the world in 1904 mm. where he he like Nemo he, he becomes a threat to the world because he has this this machine that can, can uh, it's it's amphibious but it can also fly mm. uh, and go at huge speeds and and governments can't catch up with him so he, he's he's this, this sort of character who would you know, de- develop, uh, like the Moriarty character, into supervillains and this kind of um, <laughs> take taking the, these criminal characters and just taking them that one step further. Um, but you know that these have definitely influenced Doyle with with Horror of the Heights um, from the names. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Joyce Armstrong is flying a Paul Verena monoplane. And if you look at that surname, you've actually got the name Vern, <laughs> hiding in plain view. Yes, indeed. Um, and the plane is powered by a one seven five Robur engine,
0: mm.
1: so the the, the 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 Vern references uh, are are quite clear. Um, mm. But but where Doyle is advancing from from Vern is that Verne Vern is really using his imagination. To, yeah. to create these these kind of almost crazy steam driven type machines um, whereas doyle is is extrapolating upon existing technologies
0: yes, yeah, he even has that line in there, doesn't he the The engine is a ten cylinder rotary rover mm. working up to one hundred and seventy five It has all the modern improvements in closed fuselage, high curved landing skids, brakes, gyroscopic steadiers. And three speeds worked by an alteration of the angle of the planes upon the Venetian blind principle. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, listening to Roba, the Con- your description of Roba the Conqueror as well puts me in mind of certain um, supranational billionaires and their um, mm. pet, pet, pet aviation projects. Which
1: <laughs> yes, uh, we, the, the fiction becoming fact far too quickly. Indeed, so uh and the other great uh, kind of science fiction pioneer speculative writer who's, who's always lumped in with with verne is is of course hg uh, wells mm. um and he he also was was unsurprisingly interested in in the idea of of man flight and uh, he he did um a story called the argonauts of the air mm. uh, published in 1895 which is about a, a again one of these billionaire inventors <laughs> who has, has more money than sense <laughs> in the end and, and builds this 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 massive aircraft uh, with, together with 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 an engineer um and in the um the the, the maiden flight hmm. Think, things go rather yes. hor- horribly and spectacularly uh, and <laughs> catastrophically wrong but uh, that, that's the you know again the, that that darker side of wells yeah. coming out very clearly in, in that um, I, I mean his, his other really um, really notable um, air warfare type story uh, is is the war in the air um published in 1908 which mm. is, is is a novel which prophesies um the, the, the zeppelin terrors of the, the first world war yeah um, and 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 the news um, that, that can be made of aircraft. Um, by, by the military um, so, so he, he sees this coming and, and the, the reality happens in a way in the First World War but on a, on a minor scale compared to the, 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 the carpet bombing which mm. would eventually mm. come in the 1930s and 1940s in the Spanish mm. Civil War and the Second World War mm. um, but, but Wells is very clearly sees you know, the use that's going to be made
0: yeah, yeah. Of,
1: of, of these, these vehicles.
0: Yeah. And Conan Doyle himself had experimented a bit with with um, fiction around the 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 idea of flight before um horror of the heights as well. Yeah. And he himself had created um a story which very much owes itself to uh to Verne's robo, which is um the great brown Pericord Motor, which um first appeared in March eighteen ninety-two. The story was actually completed a lot earlier. It was written in, in completed in January eighteen eighty-nine, but it's one of those uh, paper boomerangs that uh, <laughs> Conan Doyle talks about. that uh, flew around the various um, publishers until it found a home. Um, and uh, it's the story of uh, two men and their partnership. Um, Pericord is a kind of a theorist, idealist character, um, the, the the inventor and the brains behind this new flying machine. Uh, and Brown is the what? Who's called a, a mechanician, or a material is a sort of a mechanic, basically, <laughs> who is able to turn that machine, that idea into uh, into into an actual engine. And um, the story focuses on the fact that, that Brown essentially patents the invention without uh, Pericord knowing, and the the two come to blows. Uh, when they're testing the machine on the Sussex down and Brown accidentally stabs himself in the, in the, in the altercation. And it, it ends with Pericord um, being so disgusted with the machine and what has occurred that he, he straps um, Brown's body to the motor and sends it out Mm -hmm. to sea, so that uh, his, his business partner and his invention are, are sort of lost in the waves. And, um, it's a it's an interesting story because um uh you know it's again experimenting with this this idea of heavier than air flight it's a it's a peculiar motor that it's essentially like an enormous fan but with <laughs> wings as well and um and the other thing about it is that um you know in brown pericord, um you have these two characters one of whom is a mechanic, one of whom is an inventor, and as I just mentioned earlier in that quote, that description of Joyce Armstrong, he is described very explicitly as a mechanic and inventor. Um, it's like uh, Conan Doyle has combined these two into into this particular character.
1: It's it's particularly interesting when you put it in conjunction with with um, the Argonauts of the Air by by Wells, um, where both stories involve a kind of dreamy inventor type who have to have engineer mm. sidekicks yes, to, to to bring this thing into reality. Um, but what's particularly striking is it, it's Wells is the writer who people really associate with this sort of fiction. Mm. And here was Conan Doyle working on an idea three years before Wells's story appeared. So he, again, Doyle sometimes gets overlooked. Yeah. for 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 this this kind of work um so it's always vernon wells yeah but uh, another story kind of connected to this um is is one that appeared in pearson's magazine in in 1901 um and I, i was just reminded when when you talk there about brown's body being strapped to this, mm. this flying engine and drifting mm. off across the across the ocean. Um, and this this earlier story, the Pearson story, was was called "The Fate of the Firefly," mm. uh, and it's by the Reverend J M Bacon, who is <laughs> uh, none other than the father of Gertrude Bacon, who who you mentioned earlier. Yes. Um, and so he, he also was 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 interested in um, pioneer aviation and aeronautica. Uh, and he obviously passed this on to to Gertrude. Mm. Um, and in in the story of the fate of the Fly, Firefly, you have this strange flying machine has has been invented by a a, re, a reclusive uh, genius in Yorkshire. Uh, and and the narrator comes along uh, with with his his niece and ward Mabel, and they're looking at this machine. And and um, Mabel decides to have her lunch sat in it, <laughs> and 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 the inventors. St Bernard dog jumps in and sets the machine (laughs) off and there she goes flying away across across the North Sea Um, and and the 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 inventor and the uncle have to chase her halfway across Europe she ends up crashing very safely in Norway Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's 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 again the this it's it's far more slight story mm. than, than the Wells or the, the or, or, or the Conan Doyle stories, but again, mm. interesting. show. These ideas were definitely in in the air, mm. uh, so to speak. Um, <laughs> uh, and 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 uh, again, coming back to Gertrude, the the character of Mabel, you know, say the narrator's Nixton yeah. Ward, I, I feel is is a representative character for for,
0: for Gertrude herself. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Mm. So we talked about this being a a science fiction story in part, but it's also a horror story. Uh, Again, there's a connection back to to Wells. I mean, Wells wrote the Sea Raiders in the literary supplement about a giant squid that Mm -hmm. attacks people on the Devon coast. Um, I've always wondered if that's an influence on the Lion's Mane because it starts with a retired merchant walking across the (laughs) cliffs, looking down to see a body on the shore, except... Wells' story is rather more about fighting a giant squid than it is about working out what was what was going on. But in in the same kind of way, this is a creature feature, isn't it? This is uh, Conan Doyle inc- creates these uh, incredible beings high up in in the clouds. And as with most of sort of Conan Doyle's monster creations, they they either tend to be prehistoric creatures that have been restored, like the dinosaurs in the Lost World, or indeed this sort of prehistoric bear creature in the Terror of Blue John Gap. Or they're just creatures that are enormous in size, a bit like the um, the undersea creatures in in the Maricot Deep again. And again, that's a, a, another sort of Vernian influence. The jellyfish are just a fantastic uh, part of this this story. He has this wonderful way of easing you into the the story with the sort of beauty of the jellyfish before he gets onto the real the real villains of the piece. He says, uh, some hundreds of them drifted past me, a wonderful fairy squadron of strange, unknown argosies of the sky, creatures whose form and substance were so attuned to these pure heights that one could not conceive anything so delicate within actual sight or sound of Earth. Um, but then you obviously get on to this next set of um, creatures, which are described as air snakes. And of the air snakes, he says... Uh, uh, the whole aspect of this monster was formidable and threatening, and it kept changing its color from a very light mauve to a dark, angry purple, so thick that it cast a shadow as it drifted between my monoplane and the sun. I knew that it meant mischief. Every purple flush of its hideous body told me so. Um, and um, the symbolism of it being purple is is something that, that comes up in other stories. At the time, you have Fred White's The Purple Terror in The Strand in uh, September 1899, there's another story, M.P. Shields' The Purple Cloud, which is a kind of last man on earth story when the world is consumed by a deadly poisonous cloud and it's clearly an influence on, on the poison belt. And then there's a, another story there, The, the Purple Death by W.L. Alden, which came out in Castles in 1895. And um, Andrew Glazard pointed out that Sir Nigel, Doyle's great chivalric uh, epic from 1906, begins with the Black Death and describes the Black Death appearing as a purple cloud. So Conan Doyle clearly tapping into into something there. But there's also something quite Lovecraftian about this story, or proto-Lovecraftian, I suppose you'd say now. Mm. There's a line right at the beginning, which immediately put me in the mind of the works of H.P. Lovecraft, where we're told that humanity is just adjusting to the contents of the Joyce Armstrong fragment. This world of ours appears to be separated by a slight and precarious margin of safety from a most singular and unexpected danger.
1: Yes, I, as I said with the um, with with the, with the Wells story, um, the Argonauts of the Air. Conan Doyle is 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 ahead of the curve mm. in many ways in 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 this. And and yes, as you've just pointed out with the, with this idea of, of, of the unknown and, and if, if only humanity knew, yeah, mm. this, this very much ties in with, with uh, a lot of, of, of Lovecraft's ideas of, of almost, if we all knew what such and such knew, we would do as he did and blow our brains out kind mm. of thing in, in, in fear. Um, it's, it's, it's that sort of feeling to, to the story in that extent. But, but also tying into the Lovecraft element is, is the, the actual creatures themselves. Mm. Um, uh, as, as you pointed out, they're undersea creatures. Yes. They're, they're, they're creatures which are lifted out 20,000 leagues under the sea mm. and put above the earth instead of in, in, yes. in the seas. And and you, you get a lot of this in, in Lovecraft. A lot of it is kind of the, the, the tentacled monstrosities all. Mm. Uh, have have this sort of um marine quality about them mm, mm. um and all the tentacles is like you know the great god cthulhu or the or the alien god cthulhu in lovecraft is is a is a, a cephalopod and it's these tentacles coming out of his face uh, so there's there's very much that 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 element and then the, this idea of of these the creatures moving through rarefied atmosphere mm. Also fits in. So you know, in Lovecraft's 1930 story, "The Whisperer in Darkness," you, you've got the Mego or the, the fungi from Yugoth mm-hmm. who are able to move through through um, through space and through ether mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. means of, of membranous wings, and they, they they can survive this sort of world. Um, it's it's very much that sort of sort of feeling going on. I, I was also put in mind of an, another of Lovecraft's earlier stories, um, "From Beyond," in, in which uh, a, an obsessive scientist, Crawford Tillingast, invents a machine that, that, that emits ultraviolet rays, and suddenly you can see all these these creatures which share the air with us,
0: mm.
1: and we have no idea they're there. Uh, and again, it's this this kind of idea: if we only knew, I mean, yeah, we we would go mad. Um, so it, it, it's all of this is being prefigured mm. in in the horror of the heights, um, and and it, it just I know we we say this constantly, a bit, but Conan Doyle he really is he, he's is 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 ahead of the game an awful lot of the time, mm. and you're know, reflecting his hero Edgar Allan Poe again mm. in in that.
0: And there's also that connection to Lovecraft in the fact that there's this this sort of discovered journal, which is another feature of. Lovecraftian literature as well and and mm. and I think that poses another question of this story which is how reliable is Joyce Armstrong as a narrator we actually have um uh, quite a good suggestion here from Timothy Teeter in the uh, the manuscript um facsimile in which he talks about uh you know Joyce Armstrong suffers from intermittent fever which we know can lead to um uh, impaired consciousness and psychosis but also, you know, a sign of his apparent eccentricity is the fact that he is carrying a shotgun, <laughs> although we have, you know, we have a, a different interpretation on that uh, once you've, once you've read the story. Um, but also this sort of slightly um, distasteful, also um, inappropriate humor that, mm-hmm. um, uh, that Joyce Stormstone presents the, the famous bit where he's asking people with an enigmatic smile and where prey is Myrtle's head. Um <laughs> but there's also that idea that um you know this could be sort of um uh, oxygen deprivation I mean, when he goes above the clouds the whole language becomes less realistic it becomes much more um about uh, traveling through the ethereal and uh, there's almost a suggestion that he's hallucinating and then the final note poses a question about uh, about his sanity uh, it says uh, the picture of that monoplane skimming down the sky with the nameless terrors flying as swiftly beneath it and cutting it off always from the earth, while they gradually closed in upon their victim, is one which a man who valued his sanity would prefer not to dwell. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting that Joyce Armstrong is uh, maybe suffers the same fate as William Shatner in the Twilight Zone, <laughs> although he only got to half the height of uh, <laughs> Joyce Armstrong. But um, but no, there's a you know, I, I just wonder if there's something something else Lovecraftian there in this idea of the narrators who were either, you know, unreliable or indeed um, descend into madness at the end.
1: Oh, there's definitely that sort of quality in in, in Lovecraft's stories. They're, 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 so many of his narrators are, 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 are neurotic mm. um, and, and at odds with the world. You know, the outsiders, they don't fit in. And again, that adds to their unreliability mm. seen from within society think, are the, these these are odd characters um can you believe a word they say and and they, you know they're, they're, they're teetering on the brink many of them and and yes there is that definite air of of unreliability mm. um and th- there's also another thing they have in common with joyce armstrong is is he knows these creatures are up there yeah but he goes up again yes he does yeah and and lovecraft's narrators you you often reading Lovecraft. You get, don't go there. <laughs> yes, and it, it, they still it, do. It's very much that. Can kind you? Of, you're often cringing, thinking, "Yeah, oh, well, you know."
0: <laughs>
1: they know what they're walking into. Um, so there is, that element is definitely there in the horror of the heights as well.
0: Mm. So we're getting close to time now on the podcast, and uh, I really enjoyed revisiting the horror of the heights um, for a story that was written in 1913. I think this feels. Remarkably modern, and there are lots of uh things that would uh be written in years to come that i think you can you can uh draw back to the horror of the heights as a uh, as a real influence
1: yeah i uh, i think it, it is it's it's a it's a fascinating story i mean it's, it, it's an enjoyable yarn yes first and foremost it it it's great fun but as we've discussed here there's there's so much going on in the story and and it does yeah it does look ahead Mm. um to the way this sort of speculative fiction is 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 going to go um and it, it's also interesting from a kind of Doylean perspective in that it, 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 he takes this 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 technology um and does a different thing to danger where in danger he takes submarine technology and and instead of doing the the the, the, the vernian exploring realms, with that mm. he turns it into a into a military into a war story um and with this he takes uh, this aviation technology um and instead of looking at the, the the way that um aircraft could be used in a military context mm. he decides let's have fun with this and and turn it into a into a monster story
0: yeah
1: um yeah. And, and and it it, it works wonderfully
0: mm. So that's it for this episode. If you would like to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com and you can also find on the website uh, details of how to sponsor the podcast on PayPal or Patreon. Um, So, Paul, what have we got on the podcast next time? Uh, Next
1: time, we have a a trio of of odd stories, really, um, from Conan Doyle, uh, which appeared in The Strand under the joint title Strange Studies from Life. Uh, which look at a number of Victorian true crime cases in a a semi-fictionalised way. Um, And it's fascinating to look into how Doyle approached these stories and his eventual
0: view on them. Mm. So some real curios there to look forward to. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Now, you could go into the whole Freudian interpretation of giant air snakes um, and jellyfish. Um, We'd rather not. (laughs) Julia, don't look at me like that. Bob! I am not imagining it. I'm not imagining it. He's out there. Don't look. He's not there now. He... He jumps away whenever anyone might see him.